We get to start Song of Solomon today, which is uh, just going to be a ton of fun. And so we have eight weeks in what is the most uh, love, sex, romance drenched book in the entire Bible. And, uh, and so we're going we're gonna to spend eight weeks kind of going through it verse by verse from beginning to end. And, and I, I would say, just, just for the sake of opening statements here, that, that Song of Solomon is probably, maybe behind Revelation, probably the most hotly debated book of the Bible throughout church history. Um, there have been all kinds of different theories posited about how to best interpret this book. Um, most of the, the fight coming between whether it should be understood literally as love poems between uh, Solomon and who was probably his first wife, um, or if it should be allegory. And, and church fathers throughout history have looked at Song of Solomon and said, well, it, it can't, it's way too explicit to be love poems. And we couldn't speak of those things um, in Christian homes or Christian marriages. Definitely not church. Um, it's far too sensual and erotic. So it must be um, a, about God and his, his church or Jesus and his, his people, which, which seems strange to me to say it's too erotic to be about marriage, but it's just erotic enough to be about religion, right? So that that's, that's problematic to me, but um, it, it really, I, I think the issue goes a lot deeper um, than, than just at face value to say that there's a bigger issue that Christians have had and the church fathers had um, with sexuality in general and, and really throughout history, and, and this is not unique to the issue of sexuality, but in all issues um, uh, pertaining to life and experience, we tend towards extremes as humans. So throughout history, we, we've seen times in our culture and various cultures who have really embraced um, a, a a very uh, uh, worshipful understanding of sex, where, I mean, to put it plainly, sex served in those communities as, as God. And, and I don't think we have to look far to think, uh, to, to imagine such a world. I mean, it, it is the world around us. We live in a hyper-sexualized culture. Everywhere we go, everything we see is, is just been hyper-sexualized. And so kind of on the one hand, we have this um, sex is God, sex is to be worshiped, sex is to be attained, um, at, at any cost, and, and love and romance kind of play a role in that, but, but really it's sexualization independent from love, romance, marriage, relationship, any of those things. And so re- really, if you press me on it, I, I would say that is the greatest danger um, uh, uh, as far as one of these extremes goes, because when we make sex the focal point of our lives, one, one thing that is, I think, extremely dangerous happens, um, and that is a separation uh, of sex from relationship. Okay, a separation of sex from romance and love and relationship because sex becomes so important and so desired um, that the work of love and romance and relationship becomes burdensome and so it's simply removed. And the result of, of sexual experience without love, romance, or relationship is just pornography. Right? I mean, um, there's a reason. I, I know it's cliche to, to talk about pornography, but it is so prevalent in our culture that, that you can't escape it. And I think, honestly, it's just the natural progression of valuing sexual experience more than really anything else, but certainly more than love, relationship, and romance. Okay, and so you come up with um, a, an industry of pornography um, that has more annual revenue than Major League Baseball, the NBA, and the NFL combined. You have um, a pornographic industry that has more annual revenue than ABC, NBC, and CBS combined. You have a pornographic industry um, that 
makes about $12 billion a year or um, the amount of aid the United States gives to poor countries, right? And so we go, oh, what about those poor needy countries? Great, stop looking at porn and we'll dedicate that money to the poor needy countries and we'll double our foreign aid. That would be fantastic. Okay, and so we have this industry that has been born out of, I think very naturally, and, and it should have been an expectation that when we begin to separate sexual experience from love, romance, and relationship, it just becomes about the physical, it just becomes about that moment, and you don't need any of that, and so pornography is born. Okay, and so um, people throughout history, and, and even today, have looked at that and gone, well, that's broken, clearly. Um, that's, that's wrong. That's gross. It's disgusting. True. And so what they've said though, is instead of just going, that is a broken way and unbiblical way of understanding sexuality. We should seek to redeem that. They go, no, sexuality is bad. And so they swing the pendulum to the other side and they promote this kind of puritanical, um, uh, pleasure free sexuality. And so you have some of the most wise and insightful church fathers saying really stupid things uh, uh, about sexuality, like Augustine, who said that married people can have sex, thank you, um, but, they, but they can't enjoy it, right? Impossible, okay? And you, you, you have, you have um, men like Origen um, who was so um, aware of his own sexual lusts and temptations that anytime he'd be walking down the road and see a young lady or feel lust in him, would kind of throw himself into a bush so that the pain um, would overcome his sexual lust, Right? which is, you know, one way to handle it, I guess. <laughs> you have men like Tertullian saying that sex should only be for procreation and that they would, in fact, rather see um, the end of human existence than recommend people have sex, which is problematic, okay? And so uh, you, you, you've got all these people saying stupid things. You have John Chrysostom early in his life saying um, that before the fall, Adam and Eve never had sex, that there wouldn't have been sexuality um, for, for propagation. It would have just been a fruit. There would have been a tree with a fruit that they would have eaten, um, and that would have gotten Eve pregnant, okay? Ridiculous, okay? I can't even imagine which fruit that would be, Okay. <laughs> So you, you've got these crazy things being said over the years about sexuality in response to um, this broken and dark and twisted um, way that we have treated sexual experience. Now, Song of Solomon is not all about sex. It is not. It's about love and romance and relationship, and sexuality plays its proper place in its proper part in the context of love and romance and, and relationship. Okay, and so over the years, the Song of Solomon has been a real struggle for people, and it makes, makes really smart men say really stupid things like, hey, um, when it says breasts, it couldn't possibly mean breasts. It must mean um, the Old and New Testament. <laughs> so when it says that your breasts are like fawns, it must be the Old. Well, what in the world does the fawns have to do with the Old and New Testament? Nothing. But it's got a lot to do with breasts, and we're going to talk about that in a couple weeks, okay? And so... It, it, it's caused over the years very smart and godly men to say stupid things, okay? And so we're going to try and say as few stupid things as possible um, over the course of the next eight weeks as we look at Solomon. We're going to start in chapter one, go all the way through um, to chapter eight. But in order to start Song of Solomon, we need to go to Genesis chapter two. So if you will join me in Genesis chapter two, everyone should be able to find it. Go to the beginning, turn a page. You're there, Genesis 2.18. 
Um, in, in order for us to talk about what, what is going to be our overarching theme, which is redemption, the redemption of love, the redemption of romance, the redemption of sex, in order to talk about redemption, which means um, something that is broken being returned to its original state and given the value that it originally had, okay? And so in order for us to talk about the redemption of love and romance and sex and relationship, we have to, we have, to have a vision for what it was meant to be and so what the end of redemption might look like. Okay, so we have to have a vision, what our hope is, what the goal is. And so we go back to Genesis chapter 2 to see how God created sexuality to work. Genesis 2.18. This is before the fall. God's created the world perfect. It says, then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And so God looks out over his perfect creation and says, there's one thing that's incomplete. I've got this man and he's alone. And that's bad, okay? And this is a principle that continues. Man by himself, bad thing, bad situation, bad things happen. And so God looks down at the alone man and goes, we got to fix that. This, this creation of mine is incomplete. So he makes the animals and Adam's kind of interacting with the animals. He dates a bear for a while, no chemistry. The antelope doesn't really like her. And so God goes, all right, here we go. I have to, I've got this man, and he's flying solo, and he needs a mate. He needs someone with him. And so God creates woman to be that perfect complement to man. Okay? And so Adam, after maybe months in the garden with the animals, sees Eve from across the way. Verse 23. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. So after months in the garden with only animals, Adam spots this naked woman from across the garden and sings. It's got to be something good to cause a man to sing. Men just don't break into song in real life, okay? And so Adam's walking through, sees a girl and goes, Ooh, right? I mean... <laughs> Disney movie breaks out right there in the Garden of Eden. He sings a song to her. She is the most beautiful thing he has ever seen. His heart is connected to her. His mind is connected. His body is connected. She is the perfect match for him. God looks down, sees man. Says man is incomplete without woman, forms woman. Says this is, this is the fullness of my creation. This best reflects who they are. This best reflects them as made in the image of me. That God makes man and makes woman, makes man for woman, woman for man, makes them to be together. Okay? And so we make arguments. People make arguments. Well, marriage, this is a social construct. It's a product of culture. And it's not man, woman. That, that's a social thing. And, and you know, we got to undo some of this stuff. Wrong. Bible says, Genesis 2, there was no sin, there was no culture, there was no peer pressure. God looked down and saw man incomplete, formed the woman to complete, to satisfy, to be the best reflection of both manhood and womanhood together. Together. Okay, and so God formed them perfectly, put them in the garden to live and to work. Then this happened. Verse 34, therefore a man 
shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. Let me read that again for the young men. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother's basement and hold fast to his wife. Um, I, I have a young guy that lives in my garage. That's like a half step above living in your parents' basement. So just, just for him. I've already told him that today and uh, that I was going to throw him under the bus the rest of the day. So it's cool. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is absolutely crucial. We cannot understand Song of Solomon if we do not understand Genesis 2, 24 and 25. We won't get it because we will have no vision of what redemption might look like. And so we'll make little tweaks, little tweaks just to make our life easier in relationship. But we will never have our eyes on redemption unless we get Get this. So God says, I've got man and I've got woman. And when they come together in covenantal love, when they consummate it physically, emotionally, spiritually, something supernatural happens. That God intervenes and takes two bodies, souls, spirits, minds that were two and makes them into one body, one soul, one spirit, one mind, one flesh. God supernaturally puts them together, intervenes in that moment, and does something that we could not do by ourselves. Something that is meant to be eternal. Something that is meant to, as Paul tells us, to be a picture of the gospel for everyone around us. This is an amazing moment. It says that they were both naked and not ashamed. But they were naked before, fully revealed before one another. Naked physically, emotionally, mentally, there were no walls, there was no sin, there were no barriers at this time. They were fully revealed to one another, and there was no shame, there was no guilt, there was no embarrassment. That's redemption. Most of us come into relationship with shame and guilt and baggage and past and struggle and pain. We bring that into a relationship, and so we have two broken people coming together to form one big broken mess. And that's the experience that most of us have had. And so the, there are a lot of really broken people here, a lot of hurting people that come into a relationship, and, and it's, it, it goes really, really bad. And so what I want to give us over these next eight weeks is not only some really practical advice for not only how to be in a relationship, but how to seek a godly relationship. There are a lot of very single people here. I don't mean you're very single, as in you have no prospects, but you are single, so let's just call it what it is. Um, you are single and you are looking for a mate and I hope that eight weeks from now you will have a much clearer picture of who you're looking for. Now there are also a fair amount of you who are married and I hope that we give you some real practical stuff for how to make your, your marriage better and stronger and the, and the sexual part of it and the emotional part of it and the spiritual part of all of it help you work through some of that. But more than anything else, I hope we experience redemption. I hope we experience redemption in this. Some of you have experienced great pain in your lives and you bring all of that into this discussion. And so um, my challenge over the next eight weeks is to um, bring a fair amount of levity to this, really enjoy this as, as you know we will, um, but also take seriously the pain that some of you have experienced from, from sexual issues in the past, okay? And, and bring that in, into, this, into this story as well. So let's turn to Song of Solomon chapter one. 
As you're turning there, I want to give you a little bit of an introduction to um, wisdom literature in general, Song of Solomon specifically. So um, this, this book is part of a group of books known as the wisdom literature. And, and, and wisdom literature is to be read a little bit differently um, than, than some of the more theological places, some of the narratives. So as we read Song of Solomon, if you ever read Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Lamentations, which we will pick from some of those over the course of this series as, as Solomon, who wrote Song of Solomon, also wrote Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, and some of those reflections are, are really appropriate for this book as well. But when you read wisdom literature, it, it's, it, it takes on a different tone. Um, the cadence of it is really different, and oftentimes wisdom literature is, is more descriptive of reality than it is prescriptive um, theological, right? In fact, there are very few explicit theological themes in the Song of Solomon. It doesn't, it's not talking about God a lot. It's not, it's not talking about um, salvation, and it's not, it's just not dealing with that stuff. It's more of a description of this romance that, that has good stuff to, to see, that has some struggles to see, um, but it is more observational um, than it is oftentimes prescriptive. That's wisdom literature in general. Song of Solomon in particular takes on a few different themes. One, it's what they call lyrical poetry. Lyrical poetry means um, that it is not primarily um, intending to tell a story, right? And we're going we're gonna to layer it over it a little bit of a story, just some progression um, from attraction to dating, courtship, marriage, um, and on and on. But um, its its job is not primarily to tell a story. And so there will be little asides, little parts that kind of don't fall chronologically. In fact, we'll see one of those here in chapter one. So um, as it's trying to express itself most, most primarily is really to express um, emotion, experience, um, but, but not as much narrative, though there is that, is that there. Also, it's what they call pastoral poetry, which is not to say poetry by pastors, um, but, but rural, agrarian. Um, they talk about shepherds and farming and animals, and this is very typical of this type of poetry where it talks about idealized emotion like love and sexuality and these kinds of things, and it puts it in idealized settings, right? So um, this would not be too dissimilar from today when you read Nicholas Sparks novels and they're always in like these, you know, on the beach or in a forest or it's never like the love story of Detroit, you know, it's like the bridges of Madison County and, you know, these amazing locations, not that I read them, I just hear stuff, um, uh, but these, these locations where it tells an idealized story um, in an idealized location, okay, and so that's kind of what's going on here, so they'll talk about being a shepherd or in the, in the fields or whatever, so most of that is, is kind kind of uh, just to express an idealism of this situation rather than telling a literal story. Um, in Song of Solomon, we've got a couple of characters that I want to tell you about. First of all is, is Solomon. Um, most most uh, scholars believe Solomon himself either wrote this or someone in his court wrote it for him. Um, it kind of doesn't matter, uh, but Solomon is going to be one of the main characters. He's referenced as the king six times in the book. Um, even though he is the main character, he only speaks 39% of the time. Um, the woman speaks 53% of the time. Shocker, right? More. Um, but... Uh, 
she speaks 53% of the time. It's not clear who she is exactly. Um, it identifies her in chapter 6 as the Shulamite woman, um, but, it, but we're not exactly sure who that is. The only uh, uh, kind of candidate in Scripture is a Shulamite woman who was hired to take care of Solomon's father, David, um, when he was very old and, and as he passed away. Solomon had feelings for her. We know that because when Solomon's brother tried to marry her, Solomon killed him, okay? And so typically, um, you don't do that unless you uh, have feelings at some level, you know, like-likes or whatever, I don't know. But um, he killed his brother for her. So um, he, he's not a perfect dude. So uh, we, we think it could be her. Her name was Abishag, but she's not identified in the book. And so that even is speculation. We just know that she was a Shulamite. We know that she was probably Solomon's first wife. Okay, first of of unfortunately many, and we'll, we'll talk about that. So um, that kind of sets the stage. There's also a group of her friends that speak up in this, and we'll, we'll see them here in chapter one, and then her brothers come in in chapter eight and kind of say some awkward things about her, but uh, we'll, we'll, we'll get there in week eight. Okay, Song of Solomon, chapter one, verse one. The Song of Songs, which is Solomon's, she says, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. I can't think of a better way to start a love poem than have the girl say, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. That sounds fantastic. I love that this poem begins by breaking down many secular stereotypes of biblical women. Right from the beginning, she leads out. She makes her opinions clear. She's not this oppressed, kind of um, powerless, diminutive type person. She leads straight out and says, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. She is clear with Solomon. She makes her intentions clear, her desires clear, right? Ladies, something to keep in mind is that men are oftentimes stupid okay? Um, or at least thick-headed. And so subtleties and hints like, oh, I wonder what a kiss would be like. Not getting it. You'd be like, yeah, I wonder. I don't know. You know, it wouldn't, wouldn't get there, okay? And so she's very direct, and she goes, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. Now, what's, what she's not saying is almost as important. She's not saying, I'm going to kiss that guy. Where is he? Right? Because then it's the song of the stalker, and it just goes really different from there, okay? And so she is bold, she is clear, but she makes it clear she's not going to be the aggressor. She says, let him kiss me. She makes it very clear her desires, and she says that I love him. His love is better than wine. It's intoxicating. It tastes good. I want more of it. I love him. Our relationship is strong. Let him kiss me. Makes her desires known that she wants him to pursue her. Okay. Now, what this presupposes is relationship, right? So she's not just out of, out of the blue going, I want that king to kiss me, right? She, she knows him. They're in relationship. They're courting. There may be weeks, maybe months um, before their marriage. And she says to him, I want you to kiss me because I love your love. Verse 3. Your anointing oils are fragrant. Your name is oil poured out. And so she's getting all poetic on it. She's using oil in two different ways here. So she says, first, your anointing oils are fragrant or you smell good. Okay. Um, during this, this time period, in this era, men would only be able to shower once, maybe twice um, a week, right? Some of you young men have carried on that tradition. Um, and so... 
instead of being able to shower all the time, they would have oils that they would put on their body so that they would smell good. So she goes, listen, I love the way you smell. I want to get close to you. I want to be near you because you smell so good. Here's the deal. Women don't like bad smelling dudes. There's never been a moment in the history of the world where a girl's gone, oh, junior high locker room, give me some, right? Like, (laughs) that's never happened, okay? It's never happened, and it never will, okay? And so she's just being really honest, going, you smell good. I want to be near you because you smell good. That, it's just a really practical thing. Guys, mix in a shower, okay? Your, your wife will be more attracted to you. She wants you to smell good. Put on that aftershave. Put on that cologne, whatever that is. Smell good. Now, She's, she's talking about a very physical, very tangible thing, but then turns it. She says, your name is oil poured out. Or some translations say your name is the, like the finest oil. Now, the finest oil, as we would call it, the extra virgin olive oil, and would be the first squeeze, okay, the first drops of oil, and that would be separated and used in the temple to, to light the lamps and to keep them um, aflame in the temple. This was very fine oil. And so she's essentially saying, you have a good reputation. We know throughout the Bible that the name of a man is important for his reputation, that, that he is well thought of, that he has good character. Okay, this has echoes of the Proverbs 31 woman that Solomon says her husband um, sits with the elders at the city gate, that he is well thought of, that he has a good reputation in the city. Right? And so, ladies, as you consider a potential mate, don't just look at him um, on the outside and go, oh, he looks so good, he's such a good looking dude, he smells good, right? But what about his character? What about his reputation? Do other people think he's shady, right? Um, is, is he a man of, of good character? Does he have a good reputation in your community? So she, she says, listen, the exterior, yeah, that's important. Smells good. But then she flips it and goes, but, but his character is also good, right? She says, therefore, virgins love you. In other words, I'm not the only one that thinks this way. You look good, you smell good, your name is good, you have good character, and so it's no wonder that I love you, all the girls love you, right? There should be a moment in time where if you ladies or guys have a a girl in mind or a guy in mind that you really like and think is great, but nobody else agrees with you, you might be wrong. Right? And so if you tell your girls, oh man, I'm here, I'm going out with Johnny, I love Johnny, he's so great, isn't Johnny great? And they go, really? Him? That guy, he's shady, right? And, he's, and he stinks, right? Or, so, you know, there's, there's moments when we can get such tunnel vision and maybe it's because we really desire a relationship. Maybe it's because um, there's some, maybe some single aspect of them you really want. He's very popular. He's very cool. Something like that. And you just get kind of tunnel vision on it and everybody else is like, really, that guy? Now, by all means, there's the diamond in the rough and, you know, the whole deal. Maybe you're the only one that sees him for who he is, but probably not, right? Probably not. Probably 50 opinions about a guy are better than one, okay? And so maybe be aware of does this, does this guy or does this girl have a good reputation? Is he desired by other people as well? Then verse 4, again, being very honest, says, draw me after you. Let us run. The king has brought me into his chambers. Now, here, here we see at the end of, of this, this line where this somewhat what they call telescopic kind of looking out into the future. She makes her desires known to him saying, draw me after you. Again, being very clear and upfront, but asking Solomon to pursue her. Essentially, draw me out of the crowd. Pick me from among the virgins. Pick me from among all of the young girls in your court, in your kingdom, 
Draw me after you. Let us run. Let us get out of here. I want to spend time alone with you. Let's go. And then kind of makes her desires known for the future, looking forward to the day when the king brings her into his chambers. Okay? Now, the king did not bring young ladies into his chambers to play chess. Right? This has clear um, physical sexual overtones. She's looking forward to their wedding night, looking forward to being alone with him, to be intimate with him. But the thing I want us to see in this is that her desire is for this man, Solomon, her love to pick her, to pay special attention to her, to draw her out from the crowd. Okay, we see, I, I see all the time young men um, in, a, in a crowd of women treating each of them the same, but even when they have relationship with or, or desire for one of them in particular, that does not make that girl feel special. She wants to be wanted. She wants to be drawn out and singled out. If you have desire, if you have a desire for relationship with a particular girl, make it clear. She is making that clear to Solomon that she wants him to pursue her and to draw her, pay special attention to her, looking forward to the day when they can be together forever. Now, the friends come. Now, this is, this is just an aside, but guys, when you date a girl, um, you're dating that girl, but she comes with a group of friends, okay? There is usually about 20 other girls that you're kind of dating too, okay? And so you just got to be aware. It's just, it's true today. It was true thousands of years ago. Throughout time, it's a general principle of womanhood, okay? And so the, the, the girls are there, which is kind of awkward, but they're there. They say, we will exult and rejoice in you. We will ex- extol your love more than wine. Rightly do they love you. And so they're saying, Solomon, you're great. We, we love your relationship. We approve. We are so happy for you. We exalt you. We encourage you. Right? We, we see this from time to time where um, friends of ours or, or people that we know um, start to date someone that's kind of outside of the circle of friends, right? And we, we hear all the time people go, well, I just, I just love dating somebody that doesn't go to the church because there's not that pressure. And, you know, when you date somebody at church, everyone goes, when are you getting married? When are the kids coming? You know, this is the pressure mounts up. And so there's kind of a, a desire to date outside of that little sphere, outside of that circle. And I get that, but there is significant danger um, to not... Uh, kind of uh, revealing that relationship to the people around you who love you and care for you. To, To be able to live out that relationship in the context of Christian community and listening to friends and family who care about you. Who might look at your relationship and go, man, this is, I think this relationship is unhealthy. I don't think this guy is right for you. I don't think this girl is right for you. But when we isolate ourselves from Christian community, we don't allow them to speak into us. Or when they do, we kind of close our ears and pretend like they're not there and we don't listen to them again because we desire this relationship so much or we just desire a relationship so much that we don't want to blow this by actually listening to our friends and family who love us and care for us and are trying to protect us. Okay, and so if, if all of our, the, the Christian community around us sees our relationship and has significant questions about it, we need to listen. Okay, we need to listen because it will protect us from a large amount of pain. Now, in this case, um, the, the woman's friends, they approve, they love Solomon, they approve of the relationship, and they are very encouraging to it. Now, the poem takes a little turn here, and, and, I, and I love this last section as um, the woman is very honest and very blunt. She says in verse 5, I am very dark but lovely. O daughters of Jerusalem, 
like the tents of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon. Do not gaze at me because I am dark, because the sun has looked upon me. My mother's sons were angry with me. They made me keeper of the vineyards, but my own vineyard I have not kept. Right? And so um, she is very honest and upfront with Solomon here saying, listen, I know that I don't look like the other girls. In this culture, it was beautiful to be very light-skinned, to have very delicate features, to look like you've basically never had to do anything difficult in your life. To just be very soft, um, un- untainted by the sun, and, and to have um, kind of very, very light skin. And she obviously does not. She grew up in what seems to be a, a rural, agrarian, maybe lower or middle class home. Um, it doesn't appear that she had a father. Um, her mother is spoken of. Her brothers are spoken of where a father should have been spoken of. Okay, and says that um, her brothers were angry with her, treated her perhaps unfairly, um, made her tend the vineyards of the family, made her work outside. And so she is very aware of the fact that she doesn't live up to cultural standards of beauty. But I love her confidence. In verse 5, she goes, I'm dark, but I'm lovely. Okay, she is confident. She knows who she is. She knows who she's not. And just like there was, there was, Cultural pressures back then, even thousands of years ago, those cultural pressures exist today, and none of you feel it as strongly as as the young women. You walk into the grocery store, you walk by the magazines, every young woman looks exactly the same. There is cultural pressure for you to look a certain way, to act a certain way, to reveal a certain amount of your body. Go to ASU football games last night. All the girls, they look the same. They're trying to look the same. They're trying to be the same. They're trying to outdo one another in sameness. Now somehow, somehow guys have largely avoided this pressure. We can be super skinny emo kids or big fat guys with our shirts off and it doesn't matter, right? Like we just, it's acceptable. You got Will Ferrell who's naked in every other movie he's in, but he shouldn't be, right? But it's cool. It's totally okay somehow, right? And so that pressure lies squarely on the shoulders of young women. And I tell you, as a father of a two-year-old little girl, it scares the heck out of me. To think that my little girl will grow up with those pressures to look this way, to act this way, to reveal this thing, and, and I will fight it with every ounce of my being. Nothing, nothing frustrates me more, nothing makes me more sad in our culture than when I see young women succumbing to the lies that they are being told about how they should look and how they should act. And so I, I love this young lady's confidence, her self-awareness, where she goes, listen, I don't look like them. She goes, I'm dark but very lovely, O daughters of Jerusalem. Basically going, listen, Solomon, I, I get it. I don't look like the other girls in your court. I don't look like these wealthy girls who have grown up in the, in the castle, who have grown up uh, with ease in their life. That's not my story. I probably have dirt underneath my fingernails. I'm tan. I'm strong. I probably got strong arms. Uh, it's just I'm not them. And she says it confidently. She doesn't say it with a hint of insecurity in, the, in that she's not making excuses. She just goes, this is, this is what's going on. She goes, I know I'm darker than they are, but I'm beautiful. And you will love me the way I am. Okay, I will, I will seek to be attractive to you and I will seek to do whatever I can um, for you to, to find me attractive, but I'm not gonna change who I was. I'm not gonna change who I am. I'll be healthy and all those things that I need to be, but, but I'm not gonna succumb to those pressures. And I love her confidence in that, that she is a strong woman who's made clear what her desires are, but she has stopped short of, of being the, uh, the over-aggressor 
in that she has just told the man she loves, I love you, but you're gonna have to come kiss me. I love you, but you're gonna have to come draw me out. I love you, but I am who I am and I'm not gonna change unnecessarily for you. And then in verse seven, she says it again. Tell me, you whom my soul loves, where you pasture your flock, where you make it lie down at noon, for why should I be like the one who veils herself besides the flocks of your companions? Once again, she says, you whom my soul loves, I am not going to be this girl, right? And so she's referencing, again, not that Solomon is a shepherd, he's the king, okay? But she's referencing these young women who would go to the gathering places where all the shepherds would bring their sheep at around noontime to feed them and to give them water. And these young women would veil their faces and would basically avail themselves to the men. They were prostitutes. And so this young girl says, I'm not gonna be one of them. I draw the line here. I love you. She's not, she's not being angry and prideful and, 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 and aggressive with this thing. She's not going, hey, I am who I am, and you're going to love me whether or not I change or for you or nothing. She goes, listen, I love you. Your name is oil poured out. I want you to kiss me. I want you to draw me after you. I love your name. Uh, you have a great reputation. The virgins love you. My friends love you. I want to be with you. I want to marry you. I want to be in your chamber with you. You are the one whom my soul loves, but... I'm not going to be like them. Here is the line that I will draw. I'm not going to chase after you like a prostitute. I don't love you more than I love God. These are the lines that God has drawn. These are the boundaries. This is the way that God has told me to live. And I'm not going to step outside of my convictions for you. Though I love you, though I want you to come after me, though I want to marry you, I'm not going to sacrifice my convictions and my faith for you. This is a strong, godly woman who, who makes her romance with the king an issue of worship. Where she says, I, I love you, but I don't love you more than God. I love God most ultimately, and he has laid out for me the way a godly woman should act, which is not to succumb to cultural pressure, not to avail myself unnecessarily. I'm going to speak very frankly, but I'm going to do so in the context of relationship. I'm going to do so in the context of love. I'm going to speak into the future about what I want our life to be like together, but I'm not going to go outside of my convictions. She drew a line in the sand, and she didn't overstep those boundaries. This is a godly woman. And we're going to see Solomon's reaction to her, but I'll just give you a sneak preview. He likes it, right? They get married. This goes well at first. Unfortunately, Solomon didn't draw the lines that his, his love did. This is the first of 700 marriages of Solomon. He had 700 wives and 300 concubines. Something that started so good went really, really bad throughout the rest of his life. And he regretted it. He says so throughout Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, begging the young men in his court to not leave the wife of their youth, to, to be fully satisfied in them, to not go chasing other women, to keep, his, keep their eyes directly on their wife. He, he regrets much of his life after this relationship. And says so over and over and over and over. Solomon ultimately did not worship God as most, most glorious. Worshipped the moment or 
the experience or the next woman or whatever it was, the pride of having more and more and more. I, I, I don't know what it was for him. But ultimately, this young woman drew a line in the sand and said, I worship God more than I worship you. I love God more than I love you. And I'm not going out. I'm not going to be that girl. I'm not going to be that girl. I'm not going to succumb to those pressures. I love you, but I want God more than I want you. Solomon couldn't do that. And so he brought significant pain into their relationship. And in in some ways, he is not exactly the guy to be um, centering an idealized romance around, considering the decisions that he made. But if the main thrust of this series is redemption, and it is, he's the perfect, perfect character to focus on. As this relationship that was once so beautiful went so bad for the rest of his life, such pain, such trouble was brought into it. And, and I know, as I said at the beginning, I know that many of you bring significant pain into your relationships. That in the past you've experienced sin, that you've had people sin against you and take advantage of you. The statistics say that one out of every four women will be raped or sexually abused in their life. That, that is a sickening statistic. That is a sickening statistic. But I know that 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 is in some ways unavoidable and and, and brought into these relationships. And so my desire is to make this certainly a practical series that can help single people and married people and dating people and all that throughout these next eight weeks. But first and foremost, more than anything else, I pray that we would have people experience redemption. Redemption from sin, redemption from past, redemption from brokenness. See, Song of Solomon isn't primarily about God and his people, but it's also not, not about God and his people. Because nothing that, that falls under the scope of our human existence falls outside of God's lordship and God's desire to redeem. So even love and romance and sexuality, God desires to redeem. When Christ died on the cross, in part, he died to redeem these things, to redeem all of life back to him. So my prayer is that over the course of this series that you would be drawn to Jesus. Because at the end of the day, all the practical advice in the world is worthless if your heart is not given to Jesus. If we don't experience his grace, if we don't experience his mercy, if we are not given the capacity to love as only he can give us, this practical advice will be lost on us. So my prayer is that we will be drawn to Jesus as our pursuer, Jesus as our redeemer throughout this series. Let's pray. Jesus, we're thankful for really practical books of the Bible like this one where we can look at poetry the beauty of relationship, covenantal marriage, two people exploring and enjoying the, the gift that you've given us, the gift of emotion and passion, the gift of our bodies. I'm deeply thankful for the Song of Solomon, Lord, and pray that this would be a fruitful time for single people and dating couples and married couples, engaged couples, old couples and young couples, that, Lord, this would just bring a real revival in their marriages. 
But God, significantly more than that, I, I pray that many would experience redemption. Lord, there are many here who have, who have really been hurt in past relationships, maybe in, in current relationships. There is abuse, there is suffering, and there is pain. There are many in here who have been abused, and there are many in here who are abusers. And Lord, my desire more than anything else is is that they would be drawn to you. Their hearts would be redeemed. Sin would be forgiven. Hearts and minds and lives would be made whole again. Men and women would be freed from the clutches of pornography. That adulterous relationships would end. That there would be forgiveness. There would be repentance. God, I pray that there would be a a revival of of relationship and love and marriage. God, we know that only you, by your grace, can accomplish these goals. So, Lord, we begin in week one to pray for that to happen. I pray that husbands would repent to wives. They would repent for being lazy. Repent for allowing the passion to go away. But Lord, over the course of the next eight weeks, men would begin to pursue their wives again. That young single men would begin to pursue manhood. That young women would be loved and cared for, protected. God, we just pray for redemption. We know, Lord, that that is your desire. So we ask that you will accomplish your will. In your name we pray. Amen.